Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to this show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women get to the root cause of their period problems and hormonal imbalances. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my new company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Sandra Campos, to our show today. Sandra is an internationally recognized retail technology CEO and entrepreneur. Sandra grew up in Texas and is a child of Mexican immigrants who moved to the U.S. to create a better life for themselves. They were incredibly entrepreneurial, and Sandra grew up working nights and weekends at her family's tortilla factory. And she did all jobs from helping out in the office to packing room to even selling in the retail shop. However, it wasn't until much later in her life that Sandra realized how much she learned about business by living inside one for most of her upbringing. Sandra has been instrumental in launching brands like DKNY, Polo Jeans, as well as her own venture with Selena Gomez, which grew to over $100 million in annual sales turnover per year over the six years she was with her. After her entrepreneurial stint, Sandra became the president of Global Brands Group, which owned brands like BB, BCBG, and Juicy Couture. She also was most recently the CEO of the iconic brand Diane von Furstenberg. Fast forward to today, she's a CEO of retail tech startup Project Verde and founder of Fashion Launchpad, an online education platform she launched during COVID. We'll talk to Sandra about how she went from a small town in Texas to the runways of New York, the major life pivot she made after getting divorced and raising three young kids as a single mom, and how hard work, resourcefulness, and curiosity has set her up for success. We'll also talk to Sandra about her step-by-step approach to achieving the goals and dreams that you have, as well as her biggest lessons she's learned as a serial entrepreneur and CEO of major global brands. Welcome to the show, Sandra. Oh, Yasmin, I'm so excited. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait. Gosh, there's so much that I want to talk to you about your very windy and incredible journey. And, you know, I actually want to start with one big question. You know, as someone who has your background, who has been widely successful in the corporate sphere and in the world of entrepreneurship, what do you think at a high level separates people who give up and those who have the grit to keep on going? Well, I mean, I can tell you from my own experience, it's for me, when people ask me the question about my own journey, it's like I say, I didn't have a choice. I am first generation Mexican American in this country, saw two parents who had an incredible work ethic, who really focused their six kids on education and success Mm -hmm. measured by their ability to take education and create a career out of, of whatever their passions were. And, you know, I didn't have anything to fall back on. So me growing up with that environment, within that environment, to be able to say, okay, I have to make it for myself, to then fast forward many years later, having three children, getting divorced when my youngest was not even two years old, I had three kids within the age of four, under the age of four, I should say. And I didn't have a choice. It was me. It was me. It was me. So I I had to keep going. And I think that you know when you have that level of commitment, 
you have that level of experience with work ethic and also to say, you know, my parents, my grandparents made a sacrifice for something. I'm going to make it worth their while. I'm going to be able to be successful to show them that they came to this country for a reason. And also, you know, because I think there's a drive that just doesn't stop. People who can actually accept no, go down a little bit, but get back up again and keep going. You're going to have so many no's in your career. So many no's as an entrepreneur. And it's really, really hard, right? You know it yourself. It's a roller coaster ride every single day. But I think those who just can have thicker skin can really focus on the long term, don't give up. Yeah, absolutely. And your your life, and we'll tease out some of these, is just exemplifies all that. And you've mentioned your parents who I know came here from Mexico at, pre- at a pretty young age and really sacrificed mm-hmm. so much for the kids. And I believe there's six of you and even the grandkids. But I'd love to hear more about them. I know they were entrepreneurial and you probably got some of your business chops just being around them. But I'd love to just hear more about your upbringing and what life was like growing up. I have a lot of fun with this because now, you know, as you get a little older and you get a little wiser and you have your own experience with your kids and your kids going through different phases, I I can have these memories and I can remember these different situations that my parents experienced and, and how they managed and how they dealt with them. But my mother was one of five and with her mother, her mother passed away when she was 11. So she really was always an adult. She was an always an adult figure. She was the oldest of those five kids. She kind of took on that responsibility after her mother died very suddenly. She was the love of my grandfather's life. And he then remarried and had another set of five kids. But she pretty much when she was 18 years old left and moved to the US to be with my father, who by the way, they grew up down the street from one another. So even though it wasn't technically an arranged marriage, I always say it was a little bit of like an arranged marriage. Because their siblings were best friends. They all played on the same street together. And it was just one of those things where she, I mean, she hasn't said this, but I'm only imagining as well that it was like a combination of she was 18 years old. She had been raising her siblings since she was 11. She didn't have a mother and her father had a new second family. And she had this man that he had already moved to the States. She felt comfortable with him enough to move here and start a new life. And that's, that's the story I say anyway. (laughs) How how much of that, how much of that my mother has said is not really relevant. (laughs) Anyway. So yes. So they moved to California. I was born in California. I'm the second of six. We were there in California, in Southern California for their first four of their children and then moved to Texas. My father had been, he was one of those kids that just really didn't enjoy school. He wasn't going to school much when he was in middle school. At the age of 14, he had played so much hooky that his father pulled him out of school and said, if you're not going to go to school, then you're going to move to the United States and work. So he did. He shipped him off at that age. And he started working as a milkman in hotels and as an elevator operator, whatever it is that he could do, he was, he was just doing. And so when my mother moved and they started having kids, he obviously was looking for what's that long-term business that I need to have. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of immigrants become entrepreneurs because they either don't have the degrees or the skills or the network and connections had they grown up here. So he had family in El Paso, Texas. And it was the Valadez family, and they had a company called Best Buy Tortillas. It's a tortilleria. We moved four kids, my two parents, into a house that also had nine kids and two parents. Wow. 
And for a year, we were there learning the tortilla business. We actually stayed in El Paso for several years. My father really kind of you know, started focusing in on, on this aspect of what he was going to do and where he was going to take that business. So we moved from El Paso to a suburb of Dallas, Texas, and he started his own tortilla factory. So I grew up around a lot of tortillas, not just from a cultural standpoint, but also from a business standpoint. And fast forward, you don't really know what you learn until you actually all of a sudden are, are doing something that triggers this memory and this recall. And for me, I realized when I got into supply chain and technology around fulfillment, et cetera, that I was like, oh my gosh, I used to be in the back packing up boxes. I would be there when the trucks came in. You know, not only was I working on the conveyor belt or I was working packing up tortillas, which by the way, I ate a tortilla every 10 I or so. Bring so, that up. <laughs> so those those packages that I was supposed to be counting 10 or 12 for, I'm sure we're always missing at least one. But I learned so much from seeing it and being there. And by the way, it's not like you really want to do that when you're in middle school and 10 years old, 11 years old. You don't really want to be sitting in a tortilla factory at nights or on weekends because you want to be with your friends and you want to be doing other things that are a lot more glamorous than that. But it certainly was a family experience and one that, you know, my parents had deadlines and they were selling grocery stores and restaurants and they had trucks coming in at 5 a.m. and they needed to get there. They needed to get everything they could. And if they didn't have workers come in, guess who their workers were? (laughs) they had six kids for a reason. (laughs) So anyway, so yeah, so my world, I would say was very much about a lot of work. And I loved it, because I love to work. And I love to be able to build businesses and try to find and identify these white spaces. And I realized that that actually came a lot from my father, because he was very entrepreneurial, but always a dreamer about Mm. this is going to be a bigger business, or this is going to be a bigger business, or he was always trying like new things. I would say that, you know, in part, I have a bit of that within me as well and trying to make sure that I'm adding to my tool set and my skills and just very, very curious. I I do consider myself a lifelong learner. And that comes because my mother was pushing so much, and I'm sure it's like many immigrants and kids of immigrants, education, right? And we Mm -hmm. used to get paid for our A's. We'd get paid for the books that we'd read over the summer. And she was always bribing us somehow to be able to do more and more. And it worked because out of six kids, three of them went to Ivy League schools. I have a judge who's a sister who's a judge, a sister who's a professor at Penn State University, a sister who's an attorney in Salt Lake, Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah. I have a sister who's a professional photographer, an accomplished one, and then a brother who's an entrepreneur. So, and then myself. So a CEO, a judge, an attorney, a PhD professor, not bad, right? (laughs) Not bad at all. Yeah, they're definitely doing something right. And it seems like, you know, you had the right mix in terms of your dad was very entrepreneurial and a dreamer and your mom, similar to you, and maybe you got this skill from her. She also is a lifelong learner. I know she's always studying different things. She got into real estate and she was always learning. And one thing you've also mentioned in another interview about her is how, you know, she did talk about money and did talk about saving. And I can even tell by the bribing of you guys to get money if you did well in school. But I'd love to hear her perspective on money and kind of looking back at where you are today, how you think it's really impacted the way you think about wealth and money management in your life. Well, I, I wish I would have listened to her more <laughs> much earlier in life because I I tell my kids this now as well, which is, and I tell my sisters too, if we would have just listened to mom, which fast forward now means I need to listen to her now <laughs> in terms of how she's managing her finances or investments, et cetera. She was very scrappy, but very, very 
smart in how she was allocating her funds. You know, my parents Mm. didn't make a ton of money. And with that, they were giving us whatever we needed to to live and cars and school clothes and whatever it is that we needed. I was in cheerleading and we had to have cheerleading outfits and all the different things you spend money on. And they certainly gave us what we needed to, but she was very scrappy. And the one thing I remember over and over again is that she, whether she was thinking about the future for herself, because she ultimately did get divorced from my father, whether she was thinking about being independent, which I believe was always there in the back of her mind, she was always saving. So it was 20, 50, 100. She used to have bags. And I, hate, <laughs> I can't believe I'd say <laughs> this, but she literally would would have handbags and would just have cash that she was saving all the time. And she is one of those people that believed in gold and she believed in all these different investments. And she wasn't doing the stock market, but she was certainly making sure that she had plenty of cash. And one of those books, I think is called The, the Millionaire Next Door, You know, where yeah. it's you have no idea because you wouldn't imagine them being the ones that have that have created enough wealth for themselves to get by. But that's what she always thought about. She was constantly, to your point, she was constantly going and getting more degrees. She was constantly going to more and more classes and she was investing. So she would buy her first house and she would learn how she was then able to buy the second house. And she ended up at one point having 24 different homes that she had acquired and she was renting them. And then ultimately she ended up selling them. But she she was doing some of that during a time when Texas and the economy wasn't that great. So she just kept adding more and more homes to her portfolio and she was managing them. So it became, and it's very interesting because I even spoke to her last week where she was talking about how she had actually thought about when she was buying homes, she was going to help underrepresented families as well and families Mm -hmm. who couldn't get credit in the US. So whether or not they were coming in legally or whatever their parameters were, she was creating opportunities for them. So she would become their bank. And so she was creating interest and getting interest from them. She was also saying, okay, now I'm going to have this for the next 10 years. And two to three years before that, I need to start winding it down to have another one. So she actually really thought very much in advance of where she would be so that she could always have some sort of income flow, income generating from these homes. And if mm-hmm. if she was flipping out of one, she'd make sure to have another. So you know, I think about that a lot now because I wasn't smart enough to do that at the time. And at the time when she came to visit me in New York, when I first moved to New York City, and you'll appreciate this, this was, I was in a studio apartment paying $439 a month. Okay. Oh An amazing gosh. studio apartment between, on 35th Street, between Park and Madison. And great location. Great location, amazing building, doorman, et cetera. And she came and she came, this is when there were still newspapers in print. And she would bring the newspaper and she started highlighting apartments and saying, this is what you need to do. You need to buy these apartments. This was at a time when you could buy a one bedroom for $150,000. You could buy a studio for $75,000. Okay. So I'm showing now how it was not very smart because I didn't do it at the time. Because when you're in it, you're like, oh, I need money for this. Or you know, it'll always be there, right? The money's always going to be there. Or you always put it. But of course, now fast forward, those apartments are going for what? A million plus. Oh, and. Granted, it's been it's been several decades, but the point being that you know not only thinking ahead, I think she was always one that has really helped me think through longer term goals, trying mm-hmm. to 
put some concrete milestones in place so that I could also adjust them as time went on, but try to make sure that I'm achieving those goals throughout. And that's something that I've done in my career. And it's something that I haven't done it so much in my personal life as much as I've done it in my career, but I always have milestones and I try to, to be able to hit those. So yeah, I think about it more now and I'm certainly more cognizant of it all now, but I really, even though I can't go backwards, I really wish I could. <laughs> And are your kids listening to you? Or are they being like younger Sandra and just hearing their mom? But I think, you know, they are. And it's interesting because I've been a single mom now for more than 16 years. And when I had young kids, I had a choice to make about how I was going to handle my travel, my career, et cetera, being a single mom. And I had three really young kids and it just felt like a tremendous amount of pressure. And I didn't want to make it more complicated. So one of the things that I did as a, is become an entrepreneur, leave corporate, become an entrepreneur, be at home every night for dinner, not be traveling on the road every week. And with that, my kids actually saw and were around when I would have meetings, when I would be on the phone with, you know, I had a business with Selena Gomez and, and we'd be on the phone with her family or be on the phone with CAA or be on the phone with an account or I was, I was everything, right? So at one point I had, I was PR, I was legal, I was customer service and they would hear these things. And I never really thought too much about it, that they were actually going to be learning these things. But fast forward now, I really see that they've, they saw the work ethic. They understand what it takes to be an entrepreneur. They understand more, certainly my, my son who understands more about finance and P&Ls and he's now 19 in his first year in college, but he's has a real interest in it and also really solid understanding that I don't think I had for many years after I left college. It has benefited them to be able to see in the home an entrepreneur while I saw the same thing from my parents, they've seen it in a little bit of a different light, but they are certainly gaining the same type of benefits that I'm sure will they'll see and, and feel more of that as time goes on. Yeah. And I'm excited to jump more in, in a little bit later in the interview, just about your transition, what you did in the corporate world and that big change in your life when you did get divorced and jump to the world of entrepreneurship at the same time. But I want to take it back a little bit and talk about your interest in fashion, right? Like your parents were entrepreneurial and you talked about how all your other sisters and your brother, you guys have all different interests, but where did that interest in fashion come about as a young kid growing up in Texas, which isn't necessarily, you know, the fashion mecca of the world. So no, and it wasn't then for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also grew up in a suburb of Dallas. It's called Grand Prairie. And, you know, I think in part, as I, as I talk about it and as I think about it more in, in this age, I actually have pictures now where I go back and I see what I had kind of quote unquote created at no point in time. Did my mother even know what Vogue magazine was, you know, there was never yeah. bizarre or Vogue or anything sitting in our house. So I have no idea why I thought that I actually knew fashion because I really didn't. I certainly didn't understand truly what fashion is, but fashion to me was more about color and print and changing things and creating things. So I used to go to the fabric store and I would literally just buy fabric and I would come home and I would stitch and drape and I made curtains and I made pillows and I made pillow covers and sofa covers and I was doing slip covers. And then I started kind of transitioning, making things for my sisters or for myself. And that could have just been as simple as just sewing some appliques on a sweatshirt, which I was doing as well, and making my sister's friend's prom dress. <laughs> I was really just experimenting. My sisters all 
actually, the, the ones that were around me, my older sister and the, the two beneath me were very academic and very focused mm. on very voracious readers. And I wasn't. I was the extracurricular. I was doing the cheerleading. I was interested in every every organization I could be in. And, and I always wanted to be a leader. So I was always kind of like, I wanted to be head cheerleader. I wanted to be this, whatever it was. But I wasn't that voracious reader, which I realized then became why I focused more on the creative aspect of it because no one else was focused on that. I was. So that Mm. kind of gave me my own place within the home that I could be Mm. the creative one. I could be the one that was doing things that that weren't just reading books or not just reading books because they're obviously all very accomplished from from what they've done. But it took me in a different light. I think it gave me my own place. You know, when you're in a house of six kids, I think everyone probably looks for their own space and, and who they are. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness, and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds, freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now, anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances 
or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. And now let's get back to the show. You clearly had this creativity growing up that was innate for you, but you always fell into the world of the business side of things. So I'd love to hear more about how that happened. I know there was one class that you took, which I'd love to hear your perspective where you realize like, I don't want to do this. So how did you really focus on the business side of fashion? It really, unfortunately, just came because I really didn't like pattern making. (laughs) So it became a fallback because I thought I was going to have this really great creative career. And if I was going to be creative and pattern making was something I just didn't like, and I wasn't really getting into all the art history courses that were a part of any type of creative design measure, let's say. So it became a fallback, you know, and I was like, well, if I'm not going to do that, but I still want to be in fashion, what am I going to do? And Yeah, I was really interested in fashion and in buying and in the brands that were the brands that my friends were wearing, which at the time were not any of the cool brands that we know today. But again, they were very Southern traditional classic preppy kind of brands. And I was just really interested in it. So when I graduated college, I sent a resume to guests in LA and to a company in New York that I've been following that was a preppy company that doesn't exist now and got a job. And I didn't know anything about New York. I'd never been to New York. Wow. And that's a whole other story, but I'd never been to New York. And I would not recommend sending your child to New York without ever having experienced it or being told what to do when you get there. Yes. <laughs> because I, I was just kind of thrown in. It became more of like, okay, well, if I'm not going to do that, I have to do business because the business could be anything from sales, which I then started in, I started out in the buying office and I started out in and on the sales floor and then I moved into wholesale sales. So that started the business aspect. And while I was never this big salesperson per se, I didn't really have a lot of that experience it was where every CEO and president was coming from. Interesting. So when I looked at what I ultimately wanted to be, everyone that I was trying to model myself after had come out of wholesale sales. So that's why I positioned myself to go into that that aspect of the industry. Gotcha. And I know, and I'm sure this could be a whole nother podcast conversation, but when you did move to New York, right, you never have been there. You're from the South. And I think your first job, well, you're making like $17,500, which is not enough to live in New York. So just kind of looking at that phase in your life, are there any like fundamental lessons you learned at that point where you kind of have taken on later in your life? Well, I think one is being resourceful because when, you know, $17,500 may, may not be poverty or, or I don't even know what the benchmark is these days for it, but the reality was it wasn't enough and I had to have three jobs. So I was working days, nights and weekends for the first three years I lived in New York and I was sharing a room. So it wasn't like I had my own luxurious apartment. I was sharing a room and everything else. And I was also paying off some debts, credit card bills, student loans, et cetera. So I was paying off things and that, that did cramp my style, but <laughs> I was also being resourceful. So what I realized is that I did so much more socially then than I think I've done for years. And I don't know how I did that, but I would go out to the, I would go to the ATM machine and pay, get $20 out a week. $20 was my cash. And then I would 
buy a dollar potato for lunch every day from the potato vendor, the street vendor that was beneath my building from my office. And it was very resourceful. You know, at the end of the day, like I made it work. I was paying my rent. I was going out and meeting people and having friendly experiences. And I was eating, although potatoes doesn't sound like it's that healthy. (laughs) I was still, I was still eating. So I think resourcefulness is certainly one thing and not really giving up because also when I moved to New York, I had a lot of experiences that I tell my kids now these stories and they, they think it's ancient times, but I had experiences because I didn't know anything about New York and I wasn't really very street smart and I wasn't mm-hmm. savvy enough. I hadn't had that exposure. So I didn't really understand subways and reading maps in the city and all the other stuff. But I actually had a couple of experiences, one of which was I, I was coming home from my work, which was the store closed at nine o'clock and it was like nine thirty or 10 or whatever. And I was on the subway and I was a little tired. So I closed my eyes. And the next thing I know, there was all this commotion and I look up and there are four different policemen. They're jumping onto the train station. They're coming to this guy who's sitting right next <gasps> to me. And in his lap, he has a handgun that was completely out and exposed and they came to get it. And this was, by the way, the first year I was in New York from the South, having oh. you know gone to school in Lubbock, Texas, which is really, really sheltered. And it was frightening, but I still stayed. I still stayed in New York. I didn't give up and I didn't say, oh my gosh. And it was that was only one of the three major things that happened. <laughs> I was mugged as well with a friend from the same store that I worked at at night when oh we were leaving God. with a pizza we were going to go back to my apartment and have a pizza. And then we, we were mugged by a dozen teenage boys that came at us and, you know, hit my friend on the head, knocked me down, other things like that. And so those were two things, but I think just, again, I I didn't have a backup plan. I didn't have a choice. So I was like, well, this is what it is. And this is what I have to do with my life and I have to make it work. So resourcefulness, grit and determination and just never giving up. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, your stories are, I have a few New York stories, but those are definitely way worse than (laughs) mine for sure. But you definitely learned quite a bit living there, even like your first year. But what's also interesting is that when you were working different jobs, it was all within the same realm of fashion and retail, right? So you were learning different aspects of it, which, which I think is really great and probably, you know, has helped you so much now being a CEO of multiple businesses, starting your own business. And, you know, one thing that you mentioned a little bit earlier in the interview is that you were really good about creating these milestones for your yourself. I think you started doing that in your 20s, you mentioned in another interview. I'd love to hear more about that because I think it could be incredibly helpful for a lot of the women that are listening in. I always, again, it goes back to probably my mother who really created these long-term milestones for herself in terms of where she would be and what type of investments she would make and how she would get there. So I was 20 years old and started creating these lists with my roommate and close friend at the time. And started saying, okay, this is what I want. On the left side is this is where I want to be in three years. On the right side, this is where I want to be in five years. And this is what I'm looking for. And, you know, I'm not going to say that I achieved everything because I'm sure I didn't. And I'm sure I wasn't everything on those lists, but it gave me a purpose and it gave me something to look forward to and work towards. And I think that that's really important. It's been really important for me in my life. It's been really important for me in my career. And I think, you know, now it's it's more of a manifestation that people talk about, right? Manifest it and it'll come. And, and I think that that's what I was doing, although obviously I had a lot of ups and downs and I've had a lot of roller coaster, good and bad and everything in between, but it gave me a purpose and something to work towards. And that's what I needed. That's what I needed to be able to center myself and say, okay, how am I going to become 
the accomplished executive that I want to become? How am I going to become that CEO? What do I need to learn? And not everything is what goes onto a piece of paper. There are a lot of things that come in after the fact, and then you're able to pivot and say, oh, okay, well, that was actually really, really helpful. Now, what else do I need to do? And so I would take these lists and I still have them actually. <laughs> I still have my handwritten copies from when I was 20 years old. <laughs> wow. You should frame those and put them in a book. <laughs> it's actually true. I probably should, but I still have them. And I, I go back and I look, wow, that's really funny that that's what I thought was important back then. Wow. You know, but it, it did center me in it. And like I said, it gave me a purpose and a goal to work towards. I still do it today. I do it more so today probably than ever because there's so many different areas and avenues that I really like from a business standpoint and so many things I always want to do. And I try to make sure that I'm looking at things a little bit more broadly, but also very, very deliberately and intentional. I really like that. And it resonates a lot with me because, well, first of all, just being clear, like how many people take the time to just reflect on where they are and clear about their goals and targets? Like, I think that is so helpful. And in the position I am now running this business, you know, just even being clear on the three goals of the business, right? Because as someone who also is so excited and curious about so many different things, it's like just staying grounded on, okay, what are three things that is really going to move the needle, whether it's in the business, whether that's in your professional life or doing a career change and having like the focus. And like you said, manifestation, whatever you want to call it, just kind of keeps you very clear in your lane. So I have found that to be incredibly helpful. And if anything, I feel like in entrepreneurship, things are changing all the time. So I'm always like rewriting these lists, which I'd love to get your perspective on. I mean, as a CEO (laughs) who, you know, you are leading and have led so many large organizations and need to make sure everybody's on the same page. What advice do you have in terms of sticking to those goals and being very clear about what really moves a needle in whatever the situation may be? My experience is it's not always easy to get everybody on the same page. And I think it's really important, first and foremost, what you just said to narrow down to three. And there is a magic number. And I think Franklin Covey has a really great statistic that they put out there that says, if you have three goals, you're going to achieve all three goals. If you have four to six goals, you're going to achieve two or less. Mm. And if you have more than that, you're never going to achieve any of them. You get too distracted. And it took me a long time to also learn that because I am so curious. I wanted you know, so many different things. And as an entrepreneur, you see all these different ways. But yeah. I, I've seen the beauty and the, the importance of being able to stay focused and drive that communication about what those objectives are, making sure that your teams have the resources, are buying into it. And again, not everyone's going to buy into it. And sometimes that doesn't work. You know, if, if those individuals aren't buying into the strategy that the company has, then it's not the right person for that company. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you're doing what you need to do in terms of staying focused on three three major goals. And then every one of those three, I'm sure will have many breakdowns, but it ultimately has to go back to, are we still, no matter what with this, are we going back to the objective that we have in one, two or three Mm -hmm. and really just checking yourselves because it's so easy to say yes to things, even as an entrepreneur, it's so easy to say yes to an order, Yeah, but it may not be the right company, may not be the right retailer that you want to associate with ultimately long-term. It's a great to have check. It's a great to have cash flow, but is that going to further where you need to be or do you need to take a little bit more time and say no? And I think there's also been over the years, I had a lot of times where I just said yes and took it and, and did things just because we needed it. We needed the cash or we needed the business, but it always came back to bite me always. And no matter what, I think follow your instinct is so 
important to remember as well, because when you have experience, when you've gained those insights, when you've made those mistakes, you know what needs to happen. You have those instincts if it's right or wrong. And oftentimes when you've got people on your team that want to go one way and you just want to appease them, or you, you have investors, or you have other reasons that you're going there, but you know it's not the right thing, it often times comes back and it wasn't the right thing. Right. So you have to stay firm with the goals and the why you're not taking certain actions and what you're going to do because you're not taking those actions and what that alternative route is going to be. I find with entrepreneurs, it's very hard to say no and it's very hard to stay on your grounds. But the more that you do and the more focused you stay on a business, it will be better in the long run. It may not be better in the short run, but it will be in the long run. Totally. And I think also what you said in terms of being very connected with your intuition and what feels good to you. I mean, that is so key because whatever decision you make at the end of the day, it falls on you and you're going to have guilt about it or feel a certain way. But I think just practicing that, that's been a huge thing for me, just really tuning into my own intuition and what feels good about whatever decision that is in business, I think is really, really key. Well, Yasmin, you actually just said something that I think is very true. It will fall back on you. So whether you're a CEO or a founder or a head of a department, it ultimately comes back to your responsibility. So you have to know that you're going to stand behind whatever that decision is that you're making. Exactly. It makes it much easier. Like even if things go wrong, you're like, you know what? At least I felt good in my gut and I can sleep at night. It's like, what is going to allow me yeah. to sleep well at night? That's And there'll be mistakes yeah. and you have to be okay with that too, because you'll make mistakes, but you're going to learn. And as long as you can actually pivot quickly from those mistakes, then they're not going to be as costly. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, one thing I want to talk to you about, and this is going back a little bit, you briefly mentioned how there was a period in your life where you were going through a divorce and you were leaving your corporate world to be more involved with your kids at the time. I'd love to hear more about this. You were doing really well. You had executive positions at Donna Karen, Ralph Lauren, Oscar De La Renta. I'm sure that moment in your life to take that jump, you must have had a lot of courage, but I'd love to just kind of hear more so behind the scenes of, you know, what was really the inspiration for you and how did you really get involved with that first business venture of yours? Well, I'd had, so I married a man who was also in the same industry. So he was more of the creative person than I actually was. And he had come up with an idea and a concept. It was called Moby and they were designer sandwich bags. We had little kids at the time. And it was these really incredible, fun bags that women and mothers or fathers could put their kids' lunches or snacks in. And we had kind of launched it together. I ended up kind of doing it on the side at nights as I was working at Ralph Lauren, heading up a big $750 million business. I was doing this at night and getting it into 16 different countries and foods and container store and all these other different businesses that were taking this on because no one was doing it. No one was like creating, although Ziploc or Glad had them every holiday, they would, they would have the Halloween bags or the Christmas bags or whatever. There was no one doing it in a more of a fashion sense. So that was something that we had actually done on the side. So I learned a lot from that first business from an entrepreneurial standpoint, because it was everything. And it was incredible, super exciting, was doing collaborations before there were collaborations done in a lot of different ways, was doing with with Kate Spade and Todd Oldham and, and Museum of Natural History and different organizations like that as well. And it was a lot of fun. It was a great learning experience. But I had a responsibility to family and I had a responsibility to kids. So I was in corporate. But then 
I made the choice. So I say this because I think oftentimes I don't want to be a victim in any way in terms of what my life experience was. I got divorced. It was a choice and I lived with that choice. So with that, I I had three kids that were, my oldest was six. My youngest was not even two and they were very little. Right. And it's at that point in time, I had a nanny. So I was very focused in terms of the fact that it wasn't just me. I did have a nanny. So I was very fortunate with that as well. And, but I did have a lot of weight on my shoulders for how was I going to do it all? And how was I going to be able to be there for them the way that I felt I wanted to be there for my children? And then also how I was going to be there for a business because I could see that I couldn't have it all. And I was seeing certain areas in my business life that I was not getting home until eight o'clock at night. And I was, so I was traveling multiple days a week and it just felt very overwhelming to me. It also then coupled with that ended up fast forward being 2008 during the crash of 2008 and the big changes of 2009. And I was introduced to a guy whose name is Tony Melillo. And he and I had great ideas about building a celebrity brand management company. And so we partnered together and we became partners in a company called Sinister Holdings. This was 2009. And I had three small kids again at that time. So I was watching a lot of Disney Channel on the weekends. And I knew the Miley Cyrus, Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez. I knew who these girls were because of my kids. And so when we developed our business plan, we went to CAA, Creative Artists Agency, and we approached them with our plan. And and they said, great, well, who do you want? And I said, I want Selena Gomez. And it was Selena because my kids were watching the Wizards of Waverly Place show and she was 15 at the time. So they put us together for a meeting. We met her and her parents who were managing her at the time. And we spent about a year embarking on developing this business. They ended up being together out in retail for five years. We were together with the business for six years and it was Dream Out Loud by Selena Gomez. We developed the brand. We created joint venture partnerships. We had 14 different licenses. We created an exclusive business with Kmart in the US. We had a, They had a CEO whose name was John Goodman. He was a CEO of Kmart. And he was super visionary and really wanted to be able to create a great place for people to come and really experience celebrities. So he was doing it in a couple of areas. And this was the first teen celebrity business wow. that existed. So it was really fortuitous in a lot of ways. Selena grew up in the same hometown that I was from, Grand Prairie, Texas. Her mother had grown up in that town. So there was a connection there. And, you know, because I knew so much about her from my kids, I just, we, we took a risk and we were like, okay. And to be truthful, we actually had approached them and said, we want Demi Lovato and Selena Gomez. They were best friends at the time. And we thought of a concept that would really take the two of them as best friends and put something together out of retail. Yeah. Very intelligently, the parents decided not to have those two together in business. And, you know, fast forward, they ended up falling out mm. of being best friends. So it would have, it would not have worked for us to have that. So we did have to make a choice of like, which one do you want? And that's why we went towards Selena. And we took a risk, right? We didn't know. And we had so many people say no to us. When we went out to try to raise capital, when we went out to try to find a manufacturing partner, when oh. we go to try to find a retailer, we had so many have been like, mm, no. And we're like, 
it's Selena Gomez. How do you not know this? And they would say, well, she's 15. What if she becomes pregnant? What happens if she goes into drugs? What happens with this? You know, they were afraid of the fallout. It was a very different time as well, but they were afraid of the fallout that they would get. There was no social media outside of Facebook at Mm. the time. So there wasn't a consumer demanding to have products from this celebrity artist because you didn't have the social aspect of it. And there was no social selling. So we had a lot of no's. So in fact, we had more than 90 no's across all of those different areas. And we just still kept going. And Tony really led the business from a creative standpoint, design, product, marketing, image, visuals. And I did everything else in terms of focusing on the marketing, everything that she was doing with her music. We would do personal appearances with her in the stores. So I was doing everything marketing, e-commerce related, all the legal, all the, the true business part of it, the, yeah. the licensing aspect of it. So that's what I really was overseeing. And it was a great experience. Actually, one of the best experiences of my career. I love everything that I've learned in every part and every role and every company and every job, regardless if it ended well or didn't. But this was a really great time when so much innovation was happening. And in 2009 and 2010, when Airbnb and Instagram started, et cetera, I mean, we started with Selena when she had less than a million followers on Facebook wow. and that was the only social platform at the time. Yeah. So you can see how much everything's changed in the last, you know, now it's been 11 years or so, but it was evolving as it was then. And we were having to learn quickly. And one of the major things that we learned was just the authenticity of Selena, what she wanted and how she wanted to message and her family, how they wanted to message out who she was to her fan base. She was very, very authentic in everything that they did. And the other part was just, you know, as we were learning about consumer behaviors and, and patterns and what they what they were doing and where they were going and how much they wanted to spend and how it would blow up when she was performing or she had a new concert and the different things that we could do to engage the audience. So it was a really incredible experience for the evolving retail business and the retail landscape. So I'm not sure if I answered. No, absolutely. There's so many questions I have there. I mean, it seems like what an experience to be in and sounds a lot of fun. And you know, you talked about how in the beginning, you did feel overwhelmed, right? You wanted to be fully dedicated to your business, but still be with your family. Did you in time manage the balance a little bit better? Or how did you make that work for yourself? Because clearly, the business and both your family life ended up working out more than better, I would think. Well, during the time that my kids were young, that's when I really had the business with Selena. And so it afforded me the opportunity to drive them to school in the morning to to pick if I picked them up, it was there for them in the afternoons, or I would have dinner with them every single night. So it gave me the ability to do that, that I would not have had the ability to do in the job and function that I had in a corporate organization. Yeah. So I would say the the thing that I didn't do well then when I had my entrepreneurial business, when I had my family and when I was home with them was I didn't take advantage of the networking opportunities that were still going on with corporate that I could have still, and I recommend to everyone that even if you step away for a bit, keep those contacts, maintain those contacts, keep the networking going because I still was building a business, Yeah, but it just wasn't in a corporate organization or structure. And it was before D2C brands started, before people were talking into the D2C language. And so it wasn't viewed the same way that it would be viewed today. Mm-hmm. Had it be a business that we were launching today, it'd be very, very different. But I didn't do that because I was really home with my kids. So 
I don't know that that was a good balance because I was really focused on, I was doing the business, but then I was really with my kids and I wasn't doing much traveling. So I was home a lot with them. We had a lot of kind of things on autopilot with the business because of our exclusive relationship. So I wouldn't say that I had a balance, but I was very happy with being able to be with my kids and being able to let them be a part of what I was developing as well. They came to the photo shoots. They would come to... LA with us. They they were really a part of it, very integrated, and they came to every Selena concert and all those things. So so they really have a good memory and recollection of that as well. And then I would say as my kids got older, that's when in the Selena business after six years, she turned 21 and then it changed and, and her new management company was pushing her in a different direction. I had to go back to corporate because I was like, what am I going to do? Tony had started a business called ATM Collection, which exists today. And it's an amazing t-shirt company. And it's more than t-shirts, but it's predominantly t-shirts. So I went back to corporate and my kids were older and I took a job that I am so thankful for because it really expanded my skills in another avenue. And that was with regards to furthering digital and e-commerce, but international as well. Mm. So I did a lot of traveling. And for three years there, I traveled a lot every month internationally. I was every other week in LA and I was there for three, four or five days, whatever it was. But my kids at that point were kind of between middle school and high school. So I didn't feel the guilt that I had when they were six, seven, eight, you know, nine years old. And I was able to kind of do that and focus on building and rebuilding my career again. Mm. And so was that a balance? I think that I had the balance that I wanted at the time, which was to get back into the corporate life and to really be able to kind of build that aspect of my, my career again. But I know I wasn't there a lot for my kids as well. So I don't think they, I don't think they would say that they really were hurt from that, but I do think that I, I missed out on certain things. And then fast forward again to, in terms of DVF, which was which was a whole nother role. And that was also something where I was traveling a lot. My kids were also older, but I did miss things and I didn't really have a balance. Um, You know, I've said this in one other place, so I feel like I can say this now too, because I hid it for a little bit of time from my son, but a very key example of something that happened was we had International Women's Day, which was a very big focus for DBF. It's all about the women in charge. It's all about empowering women. And we were so authentically focused on that in every part of what the business was. Yeah. And International Women's Day was a big thing that Diane really focused on. And you know, you work for months, you work in developing the big program, and it's a full day program, lots of people, lots of speakers, lots of social around it, lots of everything. And we had been so focused on that I didn't I didn't put two and two together. That was also my son's birthday. Mm. And (laughs) I get up, I go to work that day. My son's in high school at the time. And midday, my daughter calls me and she says, so what are you going to do? She was already in college. And she said, what are you going to do for Luke's birthday? And I was like, (gasps) I took a huge gasp and I just started sobbing. I was at my desk my assistant was in there with me and I just started sobbing and I was like, Oh my gosh. And if you have another, like there's no better example of the lack of balance that I had in my life than that, Mm. because I had just completely forgotten about my own son's birthday. So it's a terrible thing. I regret that. And I will never do that again, but it happened and it, it taught me a lesson. And I went and we were supposed to have events going through late until the night. And I went to Diane, I said, I just, I have to go. I forgot my son's birthday. And I'm like, a mess. 
And she said, please go. And, you know, thankfully she's a mother and she's a woman who is about empowering women. And so she understood. And that's what I did. But all of this to say, I think there's different balances Mm -hmm. at different points in life, but the balance depends on what you consider to be balance. Is it balance for enough for you? Are you getting enough of what you need from your career? Are you getting enough of what you need from your kids? Because I have found that your kids are always going to need more. They're always going to want more. But you have to also take care of yourself because one day they leave. And this year now for the first time, I have all three of my kids that are out of my home for the first time. And if I didn't have my career and my all these other interests and all these other things going on, I don't know how I would feel. Yeah. You know, I might really be wallowing in misery. <laughs> but because I would be missing them so much. But you know, I think that the balance really is about what you make of it and how peace how much at peace you are with what that is. Sorry, that was a very long-winded answer, but I was hoping to give examples because I've had a little bit of both and and I don't know that I'm not one person that says you can have it all. I don't think you can. I just think you have you have to tip the scale depending on where you are on a given day. Yeah, no, and I think the examples are helpful. I mean, I've talked a lot about this, but I'm in the age where a lot of my friends are beginning to have kids and a lot of them are the main breadwinners or just have really successful careers and just kind of seeing how they navigate it has been interesting and hearing your stories, it helps a lot and it's very relatable to a lot of people. So, I appreciate you talking about that. And, you know, I want to be mindful of our time, but one thing I'd love to talk more about, you know, you your most recent stint, I know you're on another company right now. You were the CEO of DBF Diane von Furstenberg for people who might not know. And it was during one of the most challenging times, right, in our history. I mean, with COVID and fashion in itself is changing daily and so rapidly. But I'd love to hear, were there any key learnings or takeaways that you had from that experience? I mean, you talked about a personal one that you just brought up, but any other stuff that were lessons or learnings from just that experience working alongside her? I would say a few things. One is, you know, I, I do tell her that she is a great leader and she will oftentimes look and say, Oh, I don't know, because she's, she's a creative person. She's made a lot of decisions about her personal company to, to shift to this or to that, et cetera, in terms of her business. But the, one of the reasons that I think she is a, a great leader is because she enables and empowers, you know, at the time it was me, the CEO, the CEO it, she empowered me to be able to make decisions even if they were decisions that may not have been what she agreed with 100%, she empowered. And I think that's an important part of leadership that you need to trust and rely on your team, that they know what they know, you've hired them for a reason, and you're going to give them the reins and and allow them the latitude to be able to make those choices. That's one. It's big. So I think it's important. Sometimes, you know, you don't have choices in terms of I need a job, I've got to get it. I'm just going to work for this person. But you know that that person may not be the right or the best boss for you. It might not be the best organization. And and ultimately, you know, I think it's important to really do due diligence and think about where you are best situated. Where do you perform better? With what type of people, with what type of organization? And ask those questions to make sure that that's where you will fit in. You may not know everything you know, and you may not have choices. So you'll have to take roles that, or jobs or companies that you may know there's maybe it's not as long-term as you'd like, but doing that due diligence and really asking those questions and digging deep, at least so that you can go in with your eyes wide open. That would be another part that I would say just in terms of what I have learned. And then, you know, if anything, you mentioned it earlier where your instincts and 
really trusting your judgment, trusting your instincts, empowering your teams, but trusting your instincts in terms of how to steer them, how to guide them. And I think I will always in every role keep reminding myself of that because Mm -hmm. in every company I've always said, okay, I'm going to let people take this on. But my instinct always said it was the wrong thing to do or it wouldn't get us there that faster or whatever it might be. And I think you do have to go back and trust your instincts and make sure that you are guiding that ship. And while you're empowering people on your team, you're still guiding the ship with a very overarching strategy that everyone has bought into. Mm. And if they don't buy into it, and, and you know, people often ask, like, what's the biggest mistake that CEOs make. And oftentimes you'll hear the same thing, which is not getting, not making the changes with your team early on enough. So if, you know, you need to have a team, especially when you're in turnarounds, especially when you're trying to grow a a small business, you need to have teams that are fully aligned and fully believe in the plan and the strategy and and are there that you can trust. And if you don't have that, then you need to make that happen as soon as possible. And I've everyone that I've ever heard, every CEO that I admire says the same thing. And we all kind of fall back into, you know, it's it's hard because you don't make you don't make choices lightly when they impact individuals and families yeah. on a personal level. But you do have to make them because it's not only good for them, it's much better for the business. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, so many gems there. Well, I want to close on one last question, Sandra, although I could talk to you for much, much longer. But what are you most proud of that a lot of people may not know about you? And I know we talked about a lot in this interview, but anything that comes to mind personally or professionally? (laughs) I always want to be somebody that was really funny. I'm not a funny person. So I'm not... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm not I'm not a funny person. I would love to be like a comedian. I'd love to be funny. But I think that oftentimes people kind of misinterpret serious focus for being harder than I am. I have always probably focused on everyone else more than I've focused on myself, whether that's my siblings, my family, my mm-hmm. friends, etc. I do a lot for people and that's what I love. And that's what I care about the most. So if, if there's any impact that I can make, even if it's for one person, no matter what, that is much more important to me than anything else. So if I say, what am I proud of now? It's a proud of the impact that I have made on the people that I've been able to make it with and how I can help people now, even today, try to, whether it's underrepresented, women of color, whatever I want to focus on to be able to help them through business or through just getting their voice to be heard. Been there, done that. I've had many experiences, many mistakes. And if any of that can help others, then that's what I'm here to do. And I think that's the most I'm most proud that I am in terms of where my time gets spent. Oh, that's so beautiful. Well, Sandra, thank you so much for joining us today. This was so much fun. So many amazing gems and words of wisdom. I so appreciate you being with us today. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Yasmin. I appreciate even having the conversation and I'm, I'm so glad we got connected. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. 
I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire. 